What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. Thanks very much, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu. A developing story as the United States kills a top Iranian general in an airstrike. What happens next and what could the retaliation be? Plus, markets rattled by the news overseas, but off their lows of the session, should you be making moves in your portfolio or just stay the course? And an exclusive interview, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan on the Fed's next moves. He's a big one there. He's a voting member on the Fed this year. But let's now get right to our top story. All right. The U.S. killing Iran's top commander. General Qasem Soleimani in an airstrike in Baghdad. Soleimani has been a key figure in Middle East politics and Iranian politics for some time, and some have considered him the country's most powerful military commander. His death exacerbating what's already been high tensions between the Iran and the United States here. The Department of Defense saying that General Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American service members and diplomats throughout the region. In response, the Iranian foreign minister called the strike an act of terrorism and, quote, an extremely dangerous and a foolish escalation. Stocks and the oil markets reacting to the news with oil shooting higher and stocks moving to the downside, but again, off their lows of the day. For more on those moves today, let's bring in Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Also, Seema Modi here at CNBC headquarters. Bob, we'll start with you. It's been a whipsaw day. It has. And the low print was right at the open. And I mean right at 930. Let's just take a look at the major indexes. We were down as much as 368 points on the Dow Industrials. If you'll notice, we have cut that more than in half. Same with the S&P 500. Also with the Nasdaq. If you look at Dow movers, yes, we saw the big cyclical names, big uh, 3M, Caterpillar, for example, weak at the open. They are off of the lows. And what happened to that oil rally? Some of the big global oil names are now negative on the day, like ExxonMobil. Defense stocks have held up and throughout the day near the highs. Lockheed Martin, historic highs. Raytheon, historic highs as well. Been a great year for them, even in 2019. Airlines are down, but not as much as you might think. They, too, are off of their lows. That's something I point out all the time. Cost for oil and uh, for these airlines is much, much lower than it used to be. Used to be 20, 25 percent. Fuel costs now maybe 10 or 15 percent. Labor is the most expensive part of running an airline along with a number of other expenses like parts and labor, airport fees, etc. Dom, back to you. All right, Bapasani, thank you very much for that run on the markets. Oil jumping sharply following news of that U.S. airstrike that killed Iran's top military commander in Baghdad, Iraq. You can see the spike right there in the 8 p.m. hour last night when that news broke. Right now, oil is up more than 2%. It's off the highs of the session. Seema Modi joins me now with more on the repercussions on the energy sector. And Seema, it's been interesting because these moves have now tempered a bit 
as the hours have carried on. Yeah, that's exactly right. Worldwide exchange oil prices are up over 4%, which would have been the highest level since September when that Saudi attack took place. But now the world awaits Iran's next move. As you were pointing out, Qasem Soleimani, uh, a key architect in military operations in the country, widely seen as one of the most powerful military leaders. And foreign policy analysts say it's this type of context that is important to understand when trying to gauge or measure the type of response we could see from Iran. Now, the energy market is most concerned about the Strait of Hormuz, Iran possibly taking aim at this critical passageway, uh, average 21 million barrels of oil flows through this channel every day, and Iran in the past has taken aim at this channel. So that, of course, is something that the energy market is watching very closely. Another possible plan, a lot of foreign policy analysts are saying this morning, is uh, Iran's role in Iraq. Worth noting, Iraq is the fifth largest producer of oil already, and it has a couple of key bases, uh, specifically in the south at Basra. Eurasia analysts saying this morning that if the Iranians attack Iraq's production of oil in the southern tip, that that could result in oil prices shooting up to $80 a barrel, Dom. All right, so just to kind of follow up on this, we talk about the possible retaliation points here. Is it that the markets right now seem to be waiting for what that next step could be, and that's why the moves are so tempered the way that they are right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the most consequential assassinations in Middle East history, in recent years at least. So now the question is, how does Iran respond and retaliate, either look to the Strait of Hormuz or uh, Iraq's oil production? But uh, others saying that there are certainly other ways that they can retaliate, whether it's the Hezbollah in Israel, Syria, tensions in Afghanistan. So a lot is on the plate here. We're going to be diving into much more of that throughout the course of this hour with a lot of experts. Seema Modi, thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. Well, the president responding to the killing of General Soleimani on Twitter. Eamon Javers is live in Washington, D.C. with the very latest at this hour. Eamon. Yeah, that's right, Dom. A couple of developments here in Washington to bring you up to speed on. The Pentagon saying now that elements of the 82nd Airborne are going to be going to the region. About a brigade's worth of troops now uh, will be sent in. About 3,500 more troops uh, sent into the Middle East. Also here in Washington in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell taking to the Senate floor to support the president's actions uh, against this Iranian general in Baghdad and also saying that the administration is arranging a classified briefing for all senators early next week, not today necessarily, but early next week, and all senators will have access to that information at that point. Meanwhile, the president, as you point out, taking to Twitter today uh, with a pair of arguments, a couple of paired tweets, the first one directed at the people of Iraq, the president making the case really uh, in the first set of tweets that the people of Iraq don't want to be dominated by Iran, and therefore they should support the action that he's taken, taking out a key Iranian general who was in Baghdad, uh, clearly operating in Baghdad, although we don't know exactly what he was working on at the time of the strike last night. And also, in another pair of tweets, the president uh, making the case that the Iranian people themselves uh, don't love Qasem Soleimani as much as their leadership might like people to believe today. The president suggesting on Twitter that he believes anyway that the Iranian people themselves uh, might be a little bit more relieved uh, about this attack uh, than the leadership of Iran is letting on. So the president sort of giving a sense of how he wants people in the region to perceive what happened last night. And we'll see whether we get any response from the Iranian side today or any additional statements from the president. We will see him later on this afternoon in Florida at a pre-scheduled event, Tom. 
All right. Thanks, Eamon Javers, for that yeah. current state of play out in Washington, D.C. So how will developments impact U.S. relations in the Middle East? Joining us now on the phone, retired Army Colonel Jack Jacobs. And joining us from Washington, D.C., Carl Skupchin, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Perhaps, Colonel, we will start with you first as we talk about this situation developing. How critical is it and how important is it for the U.S. to get this situation resolved? Is Iran that big of a threat? Well, Iran has always been a big threat, not just to us, but to everybody else in the Middle East. Suleimani has been operating, well, more or less with impunity for decades. And the countries in the Middle East uh, are not particularly enthralled with the idea of Iran projecting its influence as it has been since the United States uh, has decided to leave the area. Uh, They're not happy with that. Having said that, what everybody in the region is most concerned about is a lack of stability. Stability is not something that one finds in the Middle East very often, and now it's even more unstable. Um, the, the situation, if it does escalate, is not going to escalate any place except in the Middle East, and this concerns everybody there. So when you use the military instrument of power, as we have, even in one incident like this, it's very important to coordinate it with the other instruments of power. Uh, we don't do that very well. Uh, we've used economic instruments. They haven't worked very well. We don't have very much patience, as it turns out. But they haven't worked very well. We've used diplomatic instruments. They haven't worked very well. What we haven't done is to coordinate all of that. And to do that, we need a strategy. Uh, yeah, I don't think anybody is convinced that the administration actually has a mid- to long-term strategy for how things are supposed to go in the Middle East and how we're supposed to operate in it. So, so Colonel, that, that brings up an excellent point. I want to turn now to Charles because I want to talk about the strategy. The Colonel seems to think that there may not be one in place. But what should, Charles, the strategy be, given what we've already seen, given that the strike has already happened, what are the next steps, and how can we kind of put that decision tree in play and in process? What are the next steps here? Well, I think the colonel's right. It doesn't look like the Trump administration had a clear strategy. I think the the best sign of that is that the escalation went from zero to 60 overnight, right? What we probably would have preferred to see is a graduated escalation, not going for someone with the notoriety, with uh, the power of, of Soleimani. And now, in some ways, the Iranians are going to be forced to retaliate. I'm less concerned about war between Iran and the United States because I don't think that either the Trump administration or the Iranian regime wants that. But I do think that in Iraq, where we have thousands of troops, in other countries in the region, the Iranians can do us a lot of harm. The Iranians have a lot of influence in, uh, in Iraq. So I think the next step is to try to open a corridor of communication to the Iranians and to prevent this from a tit-for-tat escalation in which we are hurtling forward and, and, and get a war that at this point I don't think either side wants. And the colonel's right. We need to marry our diplomatic engagement with uh, Iran, with our economic sanctions, with our military pressure. Right now, those three prongs of strategy are not integrated. So, so, so an interesting point being brought up here. You have to figure the State Department is looking to try to de-escalate things as we stand. Colonel, I'll turn back to you. We, we know that there are a number of U.S. assets 
in the Gulf region, just as Charles has pointed out. In a hypothetical scenario where we do have some kind of planned retaliation from Iran, what exactly could we expect to see in terms of targets, possible targets, that Iran would look to go after as a proportional response to what happened with Soleimani? Well, one has to start with the assumption that Charles brought up and that nobody actually wants a war in the Middle East between the United States and, uh, and Iran, not the least of them is Iran, because they would, uh, if things would turn out very badly for them. So if you start with that assumption, you can expect to see uh, small uh, attacks, relatively small attacks of the type we've already seen, and not directly by Iran, but instead by Iran's uh, 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 proxies. Uh, attacks on shipping, perhaps, uh, Hezbollah attacking areas, uh, we've seen rockets go into forward operating bases, uh, American allied forward operating bases. You're probably going to see more of that. Um, what you're probably not going to see um, are, is a large-scale attack of some kind on an American installation that's unlikely to happen uh, precisely because they don't. I think Iran does not necessarily want to be associated directly with the kind of uh, the kind of response that would engender a massive American counter I don't think they want that. Gotcha. All right, Charles, just a few moments left here. The last word to you. What is the likelihood the U.S. gets drawn into a full-scale assault and war conventionally with Iran? I think it's pretty low likelihood. I don't think the president wants that. He promised his base that we're going to be pulling out of the Middle East, not getting in deeper. And so I think he's going to instruct the people around him to try to turn down the heat, not turn up the heat. But this was a, a move that has a certain reckless quality to it. Things can unfold in ways that the president doesn't want. So I do think these next few days are critical. I agree with uh, the colonel. The Iranians are likely to continue to go after relatively low-level assets. The United States should try to keep the lid on this because, as I said, things could rapidly spin out of control if the U.S. and Iran start turning up the heat in a tit-for-tat way. All right. Colonel Jack Jacobs, thank you very much. Also, Carl Chepton at the, at the Council on Foreign Relations, thank you very much for those thoughts on the developing situation in Iran. Meanwhile, the Middle East turmoil is dragging down the markets, but not as much as you would think. We started the day down nearly 400 points in the Dow, but now we're down just half a percent. If an escalation like this can't shake the markets, can anything shake the markets at this point? For more on this, let's bring in Craig Columbus, CEO of Columbus Macro. Also, Chris Zaccarelli, Chief Investment Officer for the Independent Advisor Alliance. And perhaps we'll say, Craig, and start with you. This was so interesting to me because even when I saw the headlines and I saw the market reaction, I thought to myself initially, why isn't the market down more? Why isn't the market down more? Some of it, I think people expected a, a more volatile geopolitical year because of these sanctions in Iran are really starting to take a bite on the regime and they are sort of acting out. This was a preemptive move. But some, I think the conditions that are still in place, right, we don't have the same like we had last year in the sense that first half of election years tend to be volatile and we're not going to have the Fed switching on a dime from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, but still slow and steady economy. Fed is buying short-dated treasuries. Wages are growing faster than inflation. And you still have the China trade deal. By doing it in phases, you have a phase one deal, which was pretty modest. But the fact that nobody can get too bearish, because by doing it in phases, you can still roll out good news in the future. So the conditions that pushed us higher last year are still in place today. 
All right. So, Chris, does this kind of give you some comfort then, this idea now that markets aren't and investors and traders aren't reacting you know, violently one way or the other, given this news? And, and is this, in your mind, a change in market regime or just more noise that investors should kind of gloss over because the fundamentals in the U.S. and globally are still somewhat intact? Well, I would say it's probably the latter. Uh, you know, if you really look at the re- uh, regime change, that change happened last year when the Fed went from tightening to easing. And so we're still in an easy money regime. The economy is still doing well. We are seeing it move along at a pretty good pace. You're seeing consumer confidence is high and spending has followed that. So really, everything's in place for the market to keep moving higher. However, you do have those geopolitical risks. And what happened last night is just one example of that. So whether it's Iran, whether it's North Korea, there's always going to be risks to the market. And if things were to spiral out of control and really ratchet up higher, as the former guests were saying, then you may want to reassess. But in, in light of everything that we've seen so far, based on this action and, and some possible uh, Iran uh, counterreactions, for the most part, really, the underpinnings are still positive. And I think that's why the market is being pretty resilient to what would otherwise be a, a somewhat uh, upsetting and surprising move uh, in, in other market regimes. Right, Chris, just to follow up on that, then where would you be looking to invest? Is the energy complex still attractive? Is it technology, which has been a leadership group for a while now? So where, where exactly do you go and where do you stay away from? Well, I think if you if you look at what's just happened recently, the knee-jerk reaction is to move into energy. I would actually caution the opposite, and I would really say you want to look at what's going to be what's been working and what's likely to continue working throughout the year in the absence of some really big change. So I do believe if you look at technology, where you've got semiconductors that had been doing well up until recently but have a lot of legs behind them, you look at within industrials, there's the industrial conglomerates, as well as looking within financials. I think those larger banks, those larger investment banks, should be resilient. Today's a day where all of those uh, sectors have been down, and it could be an opportunity to really position yourself for the rest of the year. I wouldn't let you, last night's events dictate what you do for all of 2020. I, I think for now, this is a short-term story. Craig, quick last word to you. Is this a situation where the U.S. is still the most attractive market in the world? Well, I actually think the greater opportunity lies outside the U.S. Uh, look at China, where the regime is going to be celebrating 2021. It's going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the party. You saw the triple R cut. The, outside the U.S., in the emerging world, the uh, central banks have been more aggressive. And I think you actually see a catch-up trade in emerging, or you, even in Europe, relative to the U.S., who I think will be better performing markets this year. All right. Craig Columbus, Chris Zaccarelli, thank you guys very much for those thoughts on the market, given this Iran situation. Appreciate it. Well, the next Fed meeting is scheduled for the end of this month. And the question is whether or not rising geopolitical tensions could become a factor in the Fed's decision making process on interest rates. For that, let's go live to San Diego, California, where Steve Leisman is sitting by and standing by with Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. Steve, over to you. Uh, Thanks very much. Uh President Kaplan, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Steve. Uh, interesting day for you to be here. One of your specialties, one of the areas of uh, expertise at the Dallas Fed is our oil prices. Yeah. What do you make of the muted reaction or the reaction uh, to the oil market, to what's happened uh, with Iran and in Iraq? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's notable. I think you would have gotten a different reaction 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. And I think it's indicative of the United States now producing 12 million barrels a day where we rival Russia and Saudi Arabia in terms of energy production. We're much more energy self-sufficient. So because of that, you'll see these events in the Middle East. They'll have an effect, but it's going to be more muted than we might have seen historically. What kind of reaction do you need to see in the oil market to get some kind of reaction in overall economic growth in the United States? 
how would it? How will it negative? How could how it? How big a reaction? Yeah, in other so, words, a couple bucks isn't yeah, going to move no, the and, GDP needle. And it's interesting. Again, this is different than ten or twenty years ago. We've done a lot of work on this. Ten or twenty years ago, if oil prices went up. It hurt the consumer. We were a net importer, so it was negative net net negative for GDP. We, now, because we produce so much of our own oil. Uh, it helps producers. It still hurts consumers. We're also a more energy efficient economy. We're less energy sensitive. And so we think the, the effect, even if you had a five or ten dollars up, uh, is going to be more balanced. It's not going to be material uh, uh, in the way it might have been historically. And it's a little bit more uncertain whether it's actually positive or negative. It's more balanced. Beyond the impact on oil, there's just an uncertainty factor that comes along with what's going on yeah. in the Middle East right now. How does that fold in to your economic outlook along with the other uncertainties that are out there? So we know global growth going into this year has been weak. We know manufacturing has been weak. And we know trade uncertainty has been an issue. And business fixed investment we think mainly due to uncertainty, has been sluggish. So to the extent you've got global uncertainty, we still think it, it weighs somewhat on business fixed investment and manufacturing. But, it, but still, because the consumer is strong and we still expect some stabilization, we still think we can grow to two and a quarter percent in 2020. Is it your expectation that consumer remains strong through 2020? Yeah, it is still. And uh, I think you'd have to see more severe weakness in global growth, manufacturing, business fixed investment, weaker than what we've seen and what we expect uh, to spread to other parts of the economy. I don't see that. I think we will have a year of solid growth. Let's leap from that to your views on the overall outlook for 2020, along with what you think policy ought to do. Well, on the Fed funds rate, as you and I have discussed, I don't think we should be making any moves at this point on the uh, Fed funds rate. Uh, well, obviously, we keep revisiting that as the year goes on. For me, the issue will be now that we've gotten through year end in terms of the repo market, I'm sure we'll have some significant debates in the early part of this year about the size and trajectory of the Fed balance sheet. Let's follow, let me follow up on that. September, you began to... Uh, your reverse course, you had been cutting, this, reducing the size of the balance sheet. Yeah. Then you started growing it. Yeah. Should you continue to grow it the way it's been growing along with uh, the economy, or is it time to reduce the balance so sheet? So there's been two parts to the growth. One is buying $60 billion, a mil- bill, 60 billion of Treasury bills a month, and we've said we'll do that until the spring. The second part of the balance sheet growth has been these daily and term repo operations. Those uh, will hopefully run off. Uh, and the debate I'm suggesting we need to have is as we wind up these planned $60 billion a month of Treasury purchases, what do we do next? And what do I mean by that? Uh, should we have a standing repo facility, which might, in fact, let us slow down or curtail the Treasury bill purchases? What's your take on that? Uh, I think we need to debate it. I haven't come to a okay. conclusion, but, but I, I, I want to – my objective uh, for policy should be – that we, we have the smallest possible balance sheet in an ample reserves regime, which means I'm sensitive to growth in the balance sheet. I think we needed to do this in light of the repo volatility, and we've done the right thing heading through year end. But now that we've gotten past year end, I want to find ways to grow the balance sheet more slowly. That would be my objective. I'm sure there'll be disagreement about that, but that's what I'd be advocating. I just want to do one more question here. You're going to be a voter this year. Um, you can't stay on hold forever. You're going to go one way or the other. If you had to guess now, which direction would be the next move? Too, too early to guess. Uh, on the one hand, I told you 
I expect uh, solid growth this year, two, two and a quarter percent. On the other hand, we've got still trade uncertainty. We've got uh, weak manufacturing, as we saw today. And so I think it's just too soon for me to say, and I'll, I'll have a more refined answer to that question maybe as we get two or three months into the year. But at the moment, I'd, I'd stay agnostic. What about inflation? Some of your colleagues are more worked up about the issue of not hitting your inflation target. Do you think it's something that ought to prompt the Fed to act if you continue this year to not make your 2% target? I am also, as you say, worked up about not hitting our inflation target. But uh, there are other factors that I also want to consider. And, uh, and so I'd be, I'd be uh, supportive of maybe a longer averaging period or other things we can do to make it uh, uh, more oomph to meeting our target. Having said that, I'm also worried about excesses and imbalances building in the economy. And so, and I also think it's critical that Fed policy is forward-looking, not backward-looking. So even if we extend the averaging period, which I'm supportive of, that's an analytic it doesn't mean when we get to making decisions that I won't want to take into account other factors that are forward-looking. Uh, but I would be willing to let inflation run for a time above our 2% target. I'd be supportive of that. But it's subject to what's going on with other factors, including financial stability and excesses and imbalances. Robert Kaplan, Dallas Fed President, thanks for joining us. Good to see you, Steve. All right, back to you guys. All right. Thanks very much, our own Steve Leisman, and, of course, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan as well. We appreciate it. Well, coming up on the show, L Brands getting a lot of love from Wall Street today. What's changed for that battered retailer? That's coming up ahead. Plus, as the U.S. braces for retaliation from Iran, a look at how real a cyber threat is and what institutions and infrastructure could become primary targets. Don't go anywhere. The exchange is back in just two minutes. Deeper data at CNBC. The Restaurant Performance Index rose to an eight-month high in November. The rise was driven by higher same-store sales and growing customer traffic levels. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to the exchange markets right now. As you can see there, the Dow off by just about 162 points, the S&P off by about 13 and the Nasdaq down by about 38 points, by the way, right near session highs for the day so far. So a far cry from where we were just after the opening bell. Let's check out some of the movers this hour. Shares of General Motors down more than 2% following disappointing sales in the fourth quarter with trucks and SUVs seeing the biggest declines in part due to a 40-day worker strike that happened this past year. But a different story for Tesla with deliveries coming in ahead of consensus at a record 112,000 in the fourth quarter. That brings the total to 367,000 in change for all of 2019, which is in line with guidance from the company. That stock is up more than 3% as a result. 
Now let's send it over to Sue Herrera, who's got a CNBC News update. Sue. Indeed I do, Dom. Thanks very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. China's ambassador to the United Nations says his country is opposed to the use of force in international relations. He made the comments at the United Nations after a reporter asked if the U.S. strike which killed Iran's top general was a violation of the U.N. Charter. We are uh, paying close attention to the situation and uh, against any use of, form in, uh, of force in international uh, relations. And the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Iraq should be uh, fully uh, respected. A man armed with a knife rampaged through a Paris park, attacking passersby seemingly at random. He killed one person and injured two others before police shot him dead. The man's motives were not immediately clear. And here at home, according to the latest data from the CDC, 37 states are now reporting high flu activity. That's an increase from 28 states the week before. Over 6 million people have come down with the flu so far this season, and 55,000 had to be hospitalized. Nearly 3,000 people have died. You are up to date. That's the news update at this hour. Dom, back to you. All right, Sue Herrera, thank you very much for that. Here is what else is coming up on The Exchange. Ahead, the love for Apple continues and continues. An unloved retailer gets a big confidence boost from Wall Street. And falling prices, rising inventory, and big discounts. Not the words you want to hear about your city's real estate. It's all coming up on The Exchange. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, folks, let's catch you up on a few stories that need to be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire on this Friday. Here with their takes, we got Kate Rogers, also Robert Frank and Courtney Reagan as well. This all-star lineup is going to be weighing in first on Apple, kicking off 2020 with two big price target hikes. But let's look at where the stock was just one year ago, because it was this day, this day, one year ago, January 3rd, 2019, the stock fell to 142 bucks a share, having its worst day in six years. Fast forward to yesterday when shares closed above $300 a piece for a total return of 112% over that one-year span. Now, Bank of America and RBC Capital boosting their targets to $330 a share a piece. Apple, the juggernaut, it was given up for maybe dead, not really. But, Courtney, this is a big deal in a time when the American consumer continues to not just buy iPhones, but just about everything else Apple has and to And remember sell. when we were so scared that Apple was really going to get caught in the crosshairs of this trade war. And they have managed it well, whether it's Tim Cook's management uh, with the White House, the supply chain, a combination of the two things. The stock run is pretty unbelievable. It feels like you can't have a rally unless Apple participates in that. The stock chart is really impressive, particularly at the end of the year. And so I think these price target heights are probably just some of more to come. It, when you look at in the, the, the AirPods, one yeah. of the most popular items. Sold out so, this Christmas. Exactly. M- multiple months backlog, I think, of that, that new one now. One of the hottest items this Christmas. So really reigniting the wearables category. I remember, guys, I mean, Robert, when I first, that, when that revenue downgrade or that revenue forecast downgrade happened yeah. last year yeah. yep. with Apple, I kept thinking to myself, 
oh my God, this is the beginning. Yeah. It's Nokia and Ericsson yeah. all over again. Yeah. And it couldn't be anything further from the truth, right? Yeah. No, I mean, just in the past month, they've gained $180 billion in market cap. And what have they announced? Uh, nothing, nothing, really. Nothing. Right. And even these analyst reports, you look at them today, and I was trying to find something that was new. And, there, you know, one, we did some scraping of Twitter and found that mentions of the Apple iPhone, of the iPhone 11 were pretty good. Okay. But, but, so there's really nothing levitating this stock except for Apple is still Apple. People love their stuff. And hey, I, think- I got a question for you. Oh. A pointed question for you. You, are you going to buy an Apple, a new iPhone, <laughs> this year because of the rollout of 5G wireless? Because no. that's what everyone's waiting the super for, cycle, right? right? Yeah. No, I don't think I will. My phone's just shut off, and I need one for a long time now. And I, and I keep telling myself, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait, because I'm always waiting for a better camera. I'm not as concerned with 5G, but the camera is supposed to be amazing on this. Yeah. And I think that actually brings us full circle to what I was thinking about the social media mentions, is that I think that that camera matters so much more now than it ever has before True. because of social media and how much emphasis people put on amazing photos for their online profiles. So I think while it may seem silly that there are more mentions of it online, I do think it actually went Mine just got paid off on the installment. I don't want to see it's the it. only reason why I bought wow. it. I had a, you you were hold out as well. Like you guys I was. all know that I had a yeah. six for the longest yeah. time. Yeah. I didn't want to upgrade, but finally was convinced by one of our assistant managing editors, Elizabeth Cordova, that I'm doing my child a disservice by not taking good photos of <laughs> and them. The fact oh, you the, can't take a bad photo right. of her? Yeah, you can't. She's, the, she's adorable. And the battery probably didn't work on the six either. I know. Anymore, right? There that well, the that's, yeah, mine keeps anyway. dying. All right, so <laughs> moving on from Apple here. Next up, we got the battle over L Brands. First up, Bank of America upgrading the stock to a buy from neutral, saying the company has multiple options to create value. The upgrade boosting the stock more than 8% for its best day since November, as you can see there in the chart. In just the last hour, this is pretty funny, Jeffrey's analysts out with a note telling their clients the shares are up on a competitor's upgrade and to now use today's rally... <laughs> to exit those L Brands positions. So the other analysts now has to come back and say it's even more attractive now that there's a <laughs> downgrade. Exactly. <laughs> it is pretty rare to see that, that back and forth. But when you look at the L Brands business, they've got Victoria's Secret and they've got Bath & Body Works. And the performance has been pretty divergent for some time. We don't really need to belabor the point that Victoria's Secret has been through its share of struggles. They exited the swim business, which in hindsight looks like it was a mistake. They're struggling with sort of their marketing and their brand image. Bath & Body Works, on the, other, on the other hand, is still very popular and Anecdotally, I saw more Bath & Body Works bags on Black Friday than anyone else. It had a very busy store. I think it was a three-for-one promotion. People are still really into Bath & Body Works. And Les Wechner and Elbrands has a very good history of spinning out companies at the right points, even when it doesn't feel like it for the market, when you look back. I don't know what that means here, um, but I think there's some interesting analyst diverging views at a point when the stock has really shed a lot so of So, Kate, I mean, would you, are you a shopper? Would you shop there? What would change so your I image was, about shopping? I was shocked about... Bed Bath or Bath and Body Works yes. still being so popular. I had absolutely no idea. But I'm so curious, Court, from your opinion, just about the turnaround of Victoria's Secret. I know one of the things that they've struggled with is this inclusivity thing <laughs> that they kind of really missed the boat on. They canceled the fashion show. No more swimline. I mean, like, is that a brand that you can rehab? What happens next? I have, I have an interesting way of thinking about this. Mm-hmm. I think you could rehab the brand. But I actually think that a brand is allowed to be what a brand wants to be. Sure. And I actually don't think that it is necessarily wrong if they decide they want 
to be sexy. I know that may not be popular. Unless it's just not right. profitable anymore, which Absol- is, it absolutely. can't be that brand Look at anymore. the Aerie business. Like, they've done amazing because they did the exact you're opposite right. of what Victoria's Secret done. T- so I'm just curious if they'll ever totally right. So I, I, I guess my point is I think you can find success in one or the other, mm-hmm. and I think they need to figure out which way they're going to go yeah. because right now it seems like they might be trying to straddle both, and I don't think that works. All right, mm-hmm. so speaking of trying to figure out where they're going to go, let's talk mm-hmm. about topic three because it's New York. It's making a new name for itself as the city that never sells, believe it or not. The average sale price in the fourth quarter for real estate in New York fell 8% to $1.8 million. That marks New York City's eighth straight quarter of declines. Robert, could this year be any different? Or no. is this just a stalling out <laughs> of Manhattan values in general? Yeah, so it's one of the great paradoxes of our time. Right? We have a record high stock market, except for today's a little softer, but we have an incredible economy. We have all these tech companies moving to New York City. Everyone's working, apparently. Everyone's working. All these tech companies are hiring people, adding space. This should be boom time for real estate, and it's now two years straight. If you look at the supply of new development, there is a six-year supply of new wow. condos in New York City now. So you look at that supply, and 2,000 more condos coming on the market this year. Price is going down 8% just in the quarter. Maybe it will turn around or stabilize at some point, but the numbers suggest it's not going to be in 2020. What's the biggest driver of that weakness, Robert, uh, just over the last two years? So it's really two things. It's the tax issue with the salt taxes and the mansion tax that they just added in New York City. And it's, it's the fact that you don't have foreign buyers, and there was so much supply at the top. Giant new luxury condos priced at eight ten thousand dollars $10,000 a square foot that people just don't want to buy anymore. But this so is, it's oversupply and taxes. But the, the high end is still selling, right? So it's not like that's skewing the average. No, I see a penthouse no. going for like $100 million now the, or something the, else so like that. So we had a spate of deals that were at the very high end because those went into contract four years ago. Now the buildings are done. So those are actually deals that, that are sort of tracers from the past. But if you look at what's on the market now, the top sales above $5 million were down 40% wow. in the quarter. So the top is hurting. All right. Hmm. A big deal for New York real estate, guys. Now, finally, this is an interesting one, only because it's the new year. <laughs> we're so Brewer, we're brewers, brewers, <laughs> alcoholic brewers are starting to embrace Dry January as a concept, uh, looking to cash in on the growing sober curious movement, despite beer volumes. I know, this is, this is something. Yeah. I, apparently, this is something. Look I'm at not that curious graphic. about being sober. Volumes in the U.S. for <laughs> beer are falling 1.6% in 2018. The fifth fastest growing type of beer is no and low alcohol beer. Can I? Discuss. I have, I have thoughts. Okay. So I did a Whole30 last January, and I'm going to do it again this January. Explain and you can, that is. You, yes, you basically like, like deprive yourself of everything, but you sleep you really well, your energy's great, you have no sugar, no dairy, no alcohol. You're starving. So I did a dry January, essentially. No, you can eat a lot. We'll talk more oh, offline. Okay. You can eat a lot, but it's all whole, nutritious okay. foods. It's supposed to be very good for you. It's kind of like a reset, detox thing. You can't drink on it. I would never think to buy a non-alcoholic beer just because What's the point? I mean, I'm like, like either you're going to drink or you're not going to drink. No, I don't. I don't enjoy the taste that much, to be honest. So it's like acoustic Metallica. Like you just, (laughs) you just don't want it. And. You know, beer just doesn't taste great. Now, that's why we've seen so many people go to the spiked seltzers and all the mm-hmm. things that actually taste okay and have some alcoholic content. This is the worst of both worlds. You get the taste of beer, beer without, without a buzz. It. Yeah. I mean, Courtney, you're a, you're a good, wholesome, Midwestern girl. Beer drinker. Who you're loves beer beer. Just say it. Just say it. You're a beer drinker. I am. 
<laughs> I mean, does it resonate with you at all, this idea that you can you, you want the, all of the benefit of taste, but none of the buzz or the calories I'm sorry, I don't get it. To each his own, but, like, I want a full, real beer. None of this dry-ish January. I understand there's, you know, some marketing campaigns by some of these beer makers to try to go dry-ish because it's low-calorie. All right, fine. Low-calorie, fine, but alcohol's got to be there. It's kind of part of the reason. No? All right, let's let's end this here. Your drink of choice, alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Corona. All right, your drink of choice. Scotch. All right, your drink of choice. Rosé. All right, wine, beer, and liquor all together at once. Kate Rogers, Robert Frank, Courtney Reagan. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Right right Thanks, guys. Thanks. Well, stocks falling after the U.S. airstrike in Iraq, but one asset is climbing on the news, and it's not gold. We'll tell you what it is. That's coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. There's gold as a safe haven, and then there's Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency jumping 4% in the wake of that U.S. airstrike that killed Iran's top military commander, now trading up more than 6% there for Bitcoin prices. That marks a sharp turnaround following a tumultuous six months where Bitcoin had dropped below the 7,000 mark. It does, again, continue to just hover around 7,352 right now. Well, coming up, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo telling his foreign relations counterparts the U.S. is committed to de-escalation in the Middle East. What both the U.S. allies and adversaries have to say about last night's airstrike, that's coming up next. The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Well, President Trump defending the airstrike in Baghdad, which killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. The president said Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of millions of people and should have been taken out many years ago. How will allies and enemies of the U.S. respond to the military action? Joining us now is Michael O'Hanlon, senior fellow and director of research in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. Michael, thank you very much for being here today. How important is Soleimani's killing and will it reshape policy? in the Middle East. Good afternoon. Well, it's certainly going to have a lot of impact on the U.S. relationship with Iran and also with Iraq. Let me start with Iraq, if I could, because that's the one that I am most worried about. Obviously, we're headed for some difficult times with Iran. We've already had them, and they will continue. But with Iraq, of course, we've got 5,000 U.S. troops in that country. That's sort of how this whole thing began, in some sense, when the but when the Iranian-sponsored militia started attacking our military facilities, we retaliated. Then the Soleimani episode occurred, and now the Iraqis are thinking seriously of booting us out. And that would be a reflection of their passions, their feeling of an infringement of sovereignty. But I think it would be a big mistake for them and for us because it would create a, a power vacuum that Iran could then move into inside of Iraq. So you've got to watch that. That's the biggest thing that's going to happen next, in my opinion, even bigger than the likely response of Iran by using violence. I think Iran will have to do something, but it's always doing something. This may be a little bit more, uh, but I'm most concerned about whether we can preserve somehow this U.S.-Iraq security partnership that's been so crucial, and without which I think Iraq is not going to be able to withstand Iran's greater influence, and may not be able to withstand another attempt by ISIS or al-Qaeda to establish some caliphate territory in parts of the country. All right, so, so Michael, let's talk a little bit about the, the idea here that it's been a proxy war so far, right? It's been Iran-backed 
elements in Syria or in Lebanon or in places like militias in Iraq. How how much does this escalate from a proxy war to one where it could be straight on between the U.S. and Iran? The latter is not super likely because Iran knows it doesn't do well in that showdown. But Iran does quite well, as you're aware, in covert and proxy activities. And of the cases that you mentioned, and you could also add Yemen, I suppose, to the list and maybe even one or two others, Iraq is different in the sense that it has a functioning government. It's not a particularly stable country, and we know that very well, and it's been through a lot. But it has a government, and that government wants to work, up until now at least, with the United States as well as with Iran. So we've been trying to create this balancing act, if you will, make sure that Iraq is not purely in the Iranian camp. And I think we've been partly successful in the last few years under both President Obama and President Trump. Now that whole thing's at jeopardy. Because again, if we are booted out, then I think the Iraqi government has a harder time fending off Iranian activities, subterfuges, etc., and also becomes more vulnerable to sectarian tension and to terrorism. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the balancing act that the U.S. has right now, because the U.S. still does have a significant amount of military might and forces in the region. I think right. the Fifth Fleet is based out of Bahrain. So you've got the entire Fifth Fleet in the Navy, in the Gulf, operating there. You've got troops on the ground in places like Iraq, still in Afghanistan, maybe even smaller forces in Syria at this point right now. How exactly does U.S. military policy then evolve, given the fact that this has happened with Soleimani? By the way, you're right on all of that. And I would add a very important additional uh, airfield in Qatar, the Al-Udaid Air Base, which is one of the biggest air bases we have in the entire world, from which we send a lot of combat sorties and logistics sorties throughout the whole region. So there are about a half dozen different places where we've got some capacity. In that sense, our regional footprint does not go away even if we're kicked out of Iraq. I'm not overly concerned about that. But the Syria presence would be jeopardized because it does depend to a large extent on logistical support from U.S. forces in either Iraq or Turkey. And, uh, and then, of course, Iran just begins to consolidate a bridge all gotcha. the way from its own territory to the Mediterranean. So those are the big downsides if we have to leave Iraq. All right. Big deal for sure. Lots of ripple effects. Michael O'Hanlon of Brookings, thank you very much. Well, still ahead, a look at Iran's cyber attack strategy. Speaking of strategies, in retaliation for last night's attack, that company, that that comes up next. The company's most at risk. We'll talk about those. If you're looking for a bright spot, check out cybersecurity stocks right behind me. A relative bright spot today, CrowdStrike, FireEye, Fortinet, all gaining some as anticipation over Iran's retaliation efforts against the U.S. is killing, again, one of major, the major generals, Qasem Soleimani, with a cyber attack. Will they retaliate in that way? Iran has been honing its cyber capabilities, and as tensions reach a fever pitch, businesses in America may become a prime target. CNBC.com technology reporter Kate Fazzini joins us now with the details of that story. There's a reason why all of these stocks behind us were in the green today. Why is it that cyber is now such a huge focus? It's funny because I've been on the phone with representatives from these companies um, today throughout the day. And one of the major things that they heard starting just a few minutes after the news broke of this, uh, this killing were calls from their financial services clients, particularly saying, what does this mean for us? Now, why is that? Because in the past, Iran has shown that they will retaliate against things like sanctions by attacking large financial institutions in the United States and sometimes taking their websites offline.
So the banking infrastructure is going to be front and center as a risk point for this. Where else could we expect to see it? We have often heard people saying that maybe the electrical grid or our our country's infrastructure from a a power standpoint is at risk. Are all of those at play right now, given what we've seen with Iran? I don't think so. I believe that because... A, an attack on infrastructure like that. Now, we know that Iran has had some positions on U.S. dams. We know that from some intelligence reports that have come out over the last several years. But that is a little bit too risky for them. What is less risky is hiding behind some of the hacker collectives that they have hid behind in the past. When you have a group of people who are, let's say, attacking a U.S. bank, and they say they're doing it for ideological reasons, they're hacktivists, as they sometimes call themselves, it gives Iran a little distance, a little... Potentially a buffer, exactly. A little plausible deniability to say, well, it it wasn't state-sponsored just to maybe cool things off. That is really, I think, what most experts are saying they would expect to see here. So with this Iran situation, I I know that the the Revolutionary Guard there has kind of its own little cyber division or force. You mentioned the proxies, these hacktivist-type groups that they'll use or employ or finance or fund to do this. I'm wondering how much more this emboldens perhaps hackers in other jurisdictions as well. I think maybe China, I think North Korea, others around the world. Is that going to be a threat as well because of what happened, a ripple effect, if you will? That's a really interesting question, and you're you're absolutely right. Um, A ripple effect maybe isn't the right term, but uh, kind of a smokescreen. Whenever there's a lot of cyber activity happening from one country against another, it gives third countries or other nation states the ability to say, well, they're not going to be paying attention to me right now. I can slip in and get the stuff that I've been wanting to get for a long time. They're, they're ramping up against somebody else. So just a couple seconds left here. The companies that, you spe- that you've spoken to, how concerned are they? Uh, they're, they're very concerned. They're less concerned about a serious attack. They think it'll be probably something proxy-related. All right. Kate Fazzini, thank you very much for that. Thanks. It's a huge story for sure, given everything that's happened in Iran overnight. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.